to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, huge episode for me from the band The Dropkick Murphys and only The Dropkick Murphys, Ken Casey is on the show. And I have wondered about Ken's journey into punk for a very long time, and I've got answers now, finally. But we'll talk about this more in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and you got the message to me. There is also a Instagram page, a TikTok page, a YouTube page, and a Facebook page for this podcast. All of those can be found at Turned Out of Punk on those respective platforms. If you want to get in touch with me directly, there's a Twitter or Instagram at left for damien If you want to uh, support the show, tell all your friends about it. Let them all know that we have this podcast that we talk about punk on the show. Uh, and uh, that's, that's great. Please do that. Uh, also, if you want to check out the band I play in, I play in a band. We are called Fucked Up. You can find out more information at fuckedup.cc. And we have a merch store over there and some music. We got n- new records coming, came out. Yeah, I got a couple records that have come out, probably more coming out. We're going to be going on tour, just announced in the fall with the greatest, I'm going to say it, one of the, one of the greatest bands of all time. You know, when it comes to talking about music, people are like, you know, there's a sort of dichotomy, like, are you Beatles or Rolling Stones? I've always been who? And in the same way, are you Clash or are you Sex Pistols? I've always been damned, and we are going on tour with the damned, and I am so excited. Find out more information over at fuckedup.cc and some other shows. We're going to go to Europe. we got some stuff coming up, so come see me play. And we'll talk about punk in person. We can do that, too. All right, on to today's show. As I said off the top, I have wondered about this person's journey for a very long time. Today on the show, Ken Casey from the Dropkick Murphys, and only the Dropkick Murphys. And I say that because to me, the Dropkick Murphys have always been a nexus point for Boston punk and hardcore. You've got members of the outlets in there. Uh, You've got members of Fit for Abuse. You've got members of the Blackouts. You've got members of, of, well, the Bruisers. So if you want to go further, I guess, to New Hampshire, expand it out to sort of New England, uh, so it kind of is this story of all these different little scenes that have happened in Boston. Going back, the outlets are like first wave of Boston punk and like a second wave Boston punk, but they go way back to, to the sort of the original stuff, right? And Ken's the one person in that band that doesn't have a pre-band. And I've always kind of wondered about that. And, you know, add to the fact that Ken's an incredibly cool person, very outspoken about his political beliefs and kind of laying it all on the line that if you don't, you can't fuck with the Dropkick Murphys if you don't ride for what they believe in. And, and I think that's really admirable. And I've, I've, he's been someone that I've kind of always wanted to talk to about that sort of stuff as well. And then add to it that the Dropkick Murphys, as we talked about last week on the Al and Nancy episode, when Ken came up, they are arguably one of the biggest bands to come out of punk rock and still wave that flag and still ride for it. And that's, that's awesome. You know, you hear, you'll, you hear Ken talk about 
uh, Joe Biden and give kind of his uh, more rounded opinions on the subject uh, in the episode. But that footage of Joe Biden coming out where the shipping up to Boston's playing or, you know, when Nancy was talking last week, how that if you're from Boston, just automatically becomes your entrance music when you're at teachers conferences and stuff like that. So they are a, a hugely important band and a hugely important band for getting people into this kind of music for a very long time and a, and a, and a cool band. They've got a new record that just came out this year, Okima Rising, and it is another record featuring their kind of collaboration with the late Woody Guthrie's lyrics and kind of giving voice to some of these un, unsonged lyrics that uh, Woody Guthrie is sitting on. It's an incredible project that they've been involved in with um, the estate, obviously, and sort of, you know, Woody Guthrie and getting these songs out there. They also have another record called This Machine Still Kills Fascists. They've been doing it for a long time, shipping up to Boston. You know, there's a, uh, a tradition of them kind of like doing this sort of stuff with Woody Guthrie stuff. And there's... You know, we could talk about Woody Guthrie for a long time. Well, that does not come up in this episode. <laughs> this is very nerdy and very much about punk. Uh, I'm not going to ramble on and uh, fill up the rest of your day. You'll hear me ramble on in a second. Uh, that's it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Oh, actually, sorry. I should also add, you can go to dropkickmurphys.com and find out more about their tour dates. They're going to be touring. In, well, they're on tour in Europe right now, coming back to a bunch of American dates. And you can also order Okima Rising and all their other stuff you can find. it. Well, not maybe some of the stuff's out of print now. I shouldn't say everything, but you can find out more information about what is and isn't still in print uh, over on dropkickmurphys.com. All right, sit back, relax, and enjoy Ken Casey on Turned Out a Punk. Ken, thank you so much for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Good to talk to you, Damien. It's awesome to get to talk to you because I think, uh, you know, I know I know most of the origins of, of sort of the big punk bands that make sort of up the upper echelons of bands that came out of punk's origin stories. But, I don't know, Dropkick Murphys reflects like the whole history of, of Boston punk. So there's there's a lot to dive into. Cool. I'm happy to dive in. Well, I got to start off. Like they all start off. Uh, Ken, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across it? Yeah, I, I had a kid I played baseball with when I was 12 years old, uh, maybe a mixtape of just a bunch of SLF and um, Generation X and Clash stuff and just all kind of, you know, 70, late 70s Britpunk stuff. And it just kind of piqued my interest. And, and then, you know, locally, um, this was like early 80s. And lo locally, I started to like go to hardcore shows and see, you know, bands like gangrene and the fus and dys and I, w I was young and i was kind of on the outskirts of it but like the hardcore was actually my introduction to live music you know i never really even ever went believe it or not to um um you know any like kind of like i don't know like arena or you know rock like proper rock shows or anything i i, I did eventually when i was maybe like 16 or 17 i saw um Jay Giles once and and I think you know the kinks at this place Cape Cod uh Cape Cod Coliseum and um literally those were like the the only arena shows I ever saw until I saw like the stones when I was an adult you know yeah so um you know obviously Boston as a you know great um 
history of punk and hardcore and you know we're, we're like most cities we're fortunate enough to have a place like the rat which was our version of cbgb's where um you know you not only obviously they see a lot of the show shows they saw as a younger kid but also was the place that facilitated drop kicks a place to you know develop our fan base you know um not because the owner was by any means some um I mean, Jim Harold was a, a legend, a great guy, but basically, you know, the real bookers would book the the night shows, um, you know, with national talent or whatever. And then, you know, the the downstairs where all the shows were was never booked during the day unless, you know, punk kids wanted to rent it out for a matinee show. And those were all individually booked. And um, I booked, I actually booked shows there before I was, um, you know, actually started playing and drop kicks and just booking local stuff. And, and then, you know, when, when you heard like a big, um, you know, a big British oi band or something was on tour um, and be trying to book them in and, you know, bands that were, um, that we'd like to try to get to Boston, basically once we started drop kicks to be able to play with, you know, playing, trying to just not to build your career or anything, just to play with the bands you love. My goals for Dropkick Murphys when we started was it just open for like a handful of bands that we loved. And I was ready to set myself on fire and call it a day at the end of that, you know? <laughs> so glad, glad I changed my goals a little bit as we went along, you know? Yeah. Evolving goals. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, going, uh, when Al from SSD was on the show, he talked about how there was like a distinct division to him between. So that classic, boston punk rock stuff of the of the first wave and the more boston hardcore stuff obviously you're just like a kid at this point but could you perceive that division yeah at, at the at the time when it was all um you know new to me i was like a little like i said a little young to know about those divisions but obviously as you come in of age in the scene you, you realize it and it really was um you know two different worlds, you know, and just, just like, um, I mentioned about drop kicks playing downstairs in the daytime, whether it was at the rat or someplace else, all those hardcore shows were the equivalent of downstairs in the daytime, individually booked by the kids, by the bands and the out bands, like the outlets and the blackjacks and everyone else would have been the bands that were playing upstairs at night, you know? Yeah. Um, but you know, they're all, but the, all at the same time, you know, um, all, great close friends a lot of them like rick our original guitar player you know from the outlets was you know very very uh close with springer from ssd and, and chris from gangrene and all those people they're all you know even if their bands didn't necessarily share the same bills all the time or whatever they were all friends and from that from that era you know and they're, they're all like you know probably six or seven years older than me you know um so I've, I've heard them all reminisce all those stories, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, and then I, and then I think as, as, um, I, I feel like the, the, not a musical divide because like hardcore and, and, and punk shows seem to kind of mix a little bit more in a, in a all ages manner. Um, um, but I think that the division was a little bit less as time went on. You know what I mean? Um, but like I said, everyone's still 
everyone's still kind of friends and you know i don't think the division was um i mean for like al and guys like that i mean you got to keep in mind al and those people were taken straight edge seriously what springer was saying you know straight edge on stage and then he was out back smoking a joint with rick behind the, <laughs> behind this building so i mean i guess i guess it'll depend on what your uh level of dedication to a certain scene was you know yeah um i i love those outlets records they're unbelievable yeah unbelievable you know and they still i mean even some of their latest stuff like just just awesome awesome awesome, awesome. but that and that, outlet, and that outlet's guitar sound is you know what to me made drop kicks um stand out amongst um our peers at the time because fuck you had a guy who knew how to dial in a marshall amp versus a bunch of other bands that starting in the mid 90s at the same time that were lucky they could just whatever plan whatever they can get their hands on you know yeah yeah totally because like i was actually thinking about this how quickly it all came together i was thinking about i mean with the dropkick murphy's timeline because i was thinking about that network of friends compilation that you guys are on i think it's called the network of friends comp so i've got my friends i got my friends that's it sorry yeah the i got my friends compilation and but by that kind of that's like the first year of the band you guys are already established. And I guess there's like a bunch of killer tracks on that demo that yeah. are, are, are there right out of the, yeah, the demo really ended up being, uh, I think, I think the demo, the versions on the demo tape ended up being what went on to a lot of the singles. And, um, and I think it might even been, I forget exactly what was on the demo now. I just know that my home phone number was on the demo and I didn't even have the area code because back then you just put the seven numbers on. Like that just shows you how much I only was thinking about us being a local band. Why would I need to put the area code? Who the fuck is going to call me from outside (laughs) 617? You know, Um, but, uh, but a lot of those, that first recording ended up um, going on to like, I think tracks from that ended up on, I got my friends and some of the early singles and stuff. And um, yeah, man, it was, uh, it was such a trip because a lot did happen in those first few years, you know, from the singles and the first tours to, you know, two full lengths in our first within a, within a year and a half of, you know, getting the deal and stuff. Um, it was, it was a busy few years. Yeah, it's been yeah. a busy 27 years. <laughs> Yeah, because it could, it seems like it comes together overnight. Like I know it's obviously not overnight, but you know, like how long is it after the band initially comes together that you guys do that first demo? Oh man, it was quick. It was quick. Rick was like, you know, because we were all so learning on the spot, but Rick was like pushing, like we we got to get in, we got to get in and make a demo. And I didn't necessarily have the wherewithal to know how to make a good demo, but from being a guy that promoted shows and, um, you know, I guess was just like a promoter by heart. I used to throw like these hall parties as a kid, just like getting friends together. And just, I was into that side of it, you know, like spreading the word. Right. You know, so, um, you know, obviously the punk scene is just a, a, a great vehicle for that. In, in a word, you know, in a word of mouth sense back then. And, you know, a couple of good reviews and maximum rock and roll and whatever. And next thing you know, we're, uh, you know, um, have a little catalog, which the catalog should be in some kind of um, punk rock friggin' Hall of Fame because I, 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 I made the, um, 
I made the catalog on this just eight and a half by 11 piece of paper folded in half and literally hand drew like squares for the singles and described and wrote the songs and even drew the we were silkscreening our own t-shirts at the time and i would draw a hand-drawn version of like a stick figure version of the t-shirt and i said i look back at that now and go i think people must have bought shit out of sympathy you know what i mean because <laughs> it's like you know so that first split single with the ducky boys started getting good reviews and every time we put one in the mail the mail order to someone we'd stick the catalog in and sure as shit someone would you know order a t-shirt or whatever and um you know we silk screened them all ourselves but we didn't have a, a proper flash dry so if you bought um a shirt we silk screened black ink on it so if it was like a white shirt with black ink it would stay but if it was a black shirt with white ink after one wash, it was gone, you know? So you'd see like the next show, like someone would come back to another show and, and there might be a D left on it. And that would be the only <laughs> thing left, you know? So, but we were selling five bucks. So what are you going to do? Yeah. What, what made you decide to finally do a band? Because like, did you have any bands? Oh, in no, high school? No, drop kicks was my first band. It was, a. uh, like I said, I was, I was, you know, around and involved in the scene and booking shows at the Rat. And the kid I worked with, uh, they had me, he said, you're always talking about starting a band, which I was, but purely for like covers in the basement, never have a human being see us play just for fun. And he and this kid said, uh, my band has a show in three weeks. I dare you to open for us. And it was at this venue. He went to Berkeley School of Music, totally different style of music. And um I bartended with him and and it was one of those venues where like nobody goes to unless they're going to see the band and it, it, it'd be the type of thing of like one band plays at eight and next band plays at 8 30 and they check off when people come in they say who are you here to see and that's like you know you get paid like five bucks for each person that says your name so i felt like it was a safe place we could go and do it as a joke and to try to like you know, I, 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 I don't, I think we put money on it, like 30 bucks, but it was real, like just the challenge of him saying, you can, you can, you won't do it. You can't do it. And we're like, fuck you. We can do it. We wrote two songs, uh, barroom hero and in the streets of Boston. And then we learned four covers, which I can't, and I know one was career opportunities and, um, I can't even remember what else. And um, they, they were based on whatever the first four songs I learned to play on the bass were. And um, we did it. So it was six songs and we played the set twice and, uh, and played a 12 song half hour set and won the bed. And uh, we packed the place out, but with all just friends that were coming to laugh at us and to just, you know, be like, what the fuck is this? You didn't have a band last week. Now you have a band. And we did that same venue a couple of times because it was where, like, we could kind of practice without nothing but our friends. You know what I mean? And um, and th and they knew we would take not, weren't taking ourselves too seriously. And then uh, we played my buddy's uh, a, a, a gentleman who was uh, kind of instrumental, and my friend's father who was great to me in my life, and he's no longer with us but it was his uh 60th birthday party and we played that because it was his his son that was organizing it you know and uh so and then we went from that that was our fourth show uh fifth and sixth show was the freeze we're doing a reunion and um billy close from the freeze uh 
was actually our first drummer before Jeff from the Blackjacks. Uh, he was the guitar player for the Freeze, and Bill taught me how to play. Um, but he played a little drum, so he played drums for our first shows. And we opened for the Freeze uh, at TT the Bears in Cambridge and at a venue down on Cape Cod. And those were our first, you know, two shows in front of people that didn't know us, you know. And um, people, you know, they were checking it out, whatever. And But then, then we... Uh, our next show after that was the punk rock Olymp the punk Olympics at the rat. And it was, you know, a two day, eight bands a day thing. And we fucking kids grabbed onto us right then. I think they just liked the styles we were trying to combine. You know what I mean? Um, um, and people it was almost like that early fan base was just like, we're with you, even though you suck and hopefully you'll get better. And um, they, st they, they stayed with us, you know, I, I remember I was talking to someone today, actually mentioned a mutual friend, Joey Singer and him and his little crew of friends. They were like these like 14 year old skinhead kids. And I was in Harvard Square uh, going record shopping one day and I got a knock on my window when I was parking my car and it's the, hey, you're that band from the other day. And I had a bunch of the demos and I gave them all the demos. And I swear to God, if it wasn't for that day, you know, because they kind of spread the word. And, uh, no, thank God for the rat, because we got to that point where we could sell out the rat. And we started the headline shows where we'd invite seven bands from seven other cities and give them all the money. We were still working and everything. And, and you know, they'd come to Boston and play to 700 kids and, go home and say fuck boston was so good man this band took such good care of us so that when we came to their city you know and i'm talking you know philly pittsburgh in new york you know dc those bands would make sure that no matter what that the club was filled there because it was like that pride in your own scene thing they didn't want their city scene to seem lame in comparison you know and so like i credit the the strength of the Boston scene and how many kids are coming to really our ability to get out of Boston and go on tour mm -hmm. and for the tours to be successful. Mm -hmm. it, it's wild. Like those are the first two songs you write, like two classic songs from that early dropkick Murphy's period. So, so it's like pretty clear out of the gate that there's, there's something there songwriting wise. Well, I, I was, I barroom hero. I, wrote before the band even started just as i was kind of thinking about starting a band and i wasn't even thinking about writing original music i just was like i always had this idea in my head of like you know uh you know like irish music meets rock and roll but like a step above what the pogues ever did in terms of you know i, I always like to say the pogues are like a traditional band with a punk influence and you know we wanted to come at it as a punk band from with a traditional influence and um and it, it, it's interesting you say that because like it's almost like operation ivy versus the specials when it comes to ska yeah, music yeah, yeah absolutely and i and i just you know kind of coming up with like just the melody line of the vocals to that song the bagpipes and all that were an afterthought but i think if you listen to the delivery of a lot of the lyric, you know, of course, back in those days, we didn't have the additional instrumentation of the banjos and all that. You know, we had friends that, you know, were in the fire departments, like pipe band or whatever, that played on some records and stuff. But like, you know, that 
in some ways that like mixture translated even when we were just a four piece, you know, um, and, and didn't have the other instrumentation, but I think it was the, the songwriting style, the delivery of the lyrics, um, you know, kind of this, that rapid fire uh, delivery and people knew what we were going. Well, of course the band name too, dropkick Murphy's a little bit of a hint that you, what you might be going to, but you know, even that has a backstory, um, you know, the, the name come from, um, you know, there was a guy, John Dropkick Murphy, who was, um, he was like a boxing coach and a wrestling coach was back in the forties. And he had a camp and he would train guys for months and months to get ready for a fight or whatever. And, um, you know, then they'd end up shit faced before the fight and not able to. So he started to experiment with detoxifying people like tapering them down giving them like horse tranquilizer peraldehyde this is all before like fancy detoxes or anything you know and um and so all the local like old guys uh you know that i'd hear like i i got into into recovery when i was very young and i and and my grandfather would talk about it as well like oh you know, if someone was a drunk in the neighborhood or whatever, like, oh, he's at drop kicks. He's at drop kicks. You know, that's where you go to get straight. And it actually became someplace like Jackie Gleason used to go there. Apparently they just actually, uh, this girl, Emily Sweeney just wrote a book on about him that I did the forward to. Um, but, uh, so that's where we got the name from. That's where, you know, the name comes. So I don't necessarily even think we were trying to be like, let's come up with a name that sounds Irish. We just loved that name because we would hear all the old old timers around in our life talk about these crazy stories about dropkick murphy's and we're like that's so fucking cool um and ironically yeah. his elderly son started to come years ago and bring like the the grandkids and stuff because they got a kick out of the fact that we you know kept the name alive you know it's it's interesting how like you know now um, harm reduction and, and different approaches to recovery are, are coming more into vogue. You know, the idea of weaning people off things or replacing, replacing things with other substances or stuff like that. It, it's fascinating. I, I got to read this book. Yeah. He wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like anything recovery based. He was just helping people get back to get back to square one. You know what I mean? But obviously a lot of the guys that did go on to, get sober and 12 step programs and stuff. That's where they went to just get, get straight. You know what I mean? And, um, but dropkick himself wasn't trying to give people advice on what to do with themselves afterwards. You know, apparently many of his, uh, people would come back, uh, quite frequently, you know? <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Cause like the, the Boston scene, you know, I once again, acknowledging I'm separated by geographical distance, but, you know, it felt, it is, as we talked about, very divided, but when Dropkick Murphy's start, it feels like it kind of comes together and kind of galvanizes around the band a little bit. Like, you've got Matt from the hardcore scene, uh, you've obviously got that connection to the older punk rock scene, uh, and, and you're, do, you're doing flat records yourself, so you are scene building as a band, but it really does feel like things kind of come together. Yeah, I mean, we knew, yeah, like, it's, a, it's the great thing about Boston is it's, it's, a, it's a big city. But it's small enough and it's got that parochial side to it where you knew everyone. I, you know, I went to school with kids from all over the city, you know, Catholic high school and grammar school. And you just knew everybody. It was just easy to connect. In, and it was, a, you know, it's just a great place. It's in, in that sense. And the fact that, yeah, and, and we were someone that we did 
between the various members, we all traveled in multiple circles. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it was, it was in the very early days, it was easy to galvanize support of, and I think even when people weren't necessarily like a lot of the hardcore kids that we weren't really heavy enough for them, but they're like, we like what they're doing. <laughs> like We like how they represent Boston. We like that they're trying to get out and go on tour and they bring hardcore bands with them when they play. And, you know, so even even the people who we might not have been their musical cup of tea, they were they were in our corner, you know? Yeah, well, I think there's also that sort of shared musical DNA, too, with oi music. There's obviously like an early oi kind of influence on those early uh, Dropkick Murphys records. And I think that's also in hardcore, too, right? Like American hardcore is hugely influenced by British street punk and oi and stuff. Yeah, and I think above and beyond us um, at that time period, you know, a lot of other bands were bridging that gap themselves. You know, uh, you know, the business was one of the first tours we ever did, and you know, they were they were very well connected with the hardcore roots. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. um, and there was a lot of we we weren't the only ones that that by any means that we're making those connections. It was just that in Boston, we just happened to be actual physically connected in all those worlds. You know what I mean? Because whether it was other bands that band members played in or whether just friends or whatever, you know? Yeah. And and not to make it like a nationalistic thing or anything, but you're like an American band doing this, which I think is kind of different. I mean, hundred percent. I, I, and that's why we didn't really be honest with it. Why we were always accepted well in Ireland because we'd always go to Ireland and go, Mm -hmm. We're an American band, and, and and the Irish flag that we do wave is definitely a unique Boston Irish thing that um, you know could only come out of there, and um, and I think uh, people respected that in Ireland, and I think people in America, uh, you know, especially in those early days, our roots were definitely, um, you know, based just as much in American hardcore as it was in um in late 70s british punk as it was in irish music and as it was as it was in you know 70s rock and roll too you know yeah well and i think the hardcore stuff comes out even more once al Barr joins the band you know and his kind of ferociousness even on those earlier songs like that really comes out a lot more yeah and it makes you when you get a voice that's delivering that can deliver that it makes you want to write another hardcore <laughs> yeah. song too. You know, what I mean? so, yeah. but, but I feel like we always kind of, I always loved that we were granted this wide berth. And I think it's cause we dabbled in that from the start. A band can't really change many years in, but you know, when you're all playing a show and you can do, you know, friggin' Irish jig to a ballad, to a straight up hardcore song, to a rock song, all within a half hour in a set, it keeps your life in a as a band member a lot more interesting. You know what I mean? It's just like, mm-hmm. and the fan base, although I imagine over the years, cer- certain fans of the band would prefer one side to the other, they all knew, like, this is the mix that makes Dropkick Murphys, you know? We got to put up with maybe the side, or maybe they had to grow to like the side that they didn't, sign up for you know what i mean yeah but that stuff was like baked in from the very beginning it seems like you guys always were kind of playing with genres and it's really hard to place what the dropkick murphys were in terms of like one particular sound like even 
even early songs like the skinhead on the MTA and and songs that had a like completely sort of different sound or vibe to them. Yeah, and the funny thing is, none of that was really ever something we were trying to achieve. We were just kind of spewing out the influences that we liked. You know what I mean? And that's how, you know, that's how you write songs, I guess, is by what what interest you know what what is the music that inspires you you know i don't you know i ask anyone that's a songwriter i'm sure you know there's never some pop artist that just said i just all of a sudden came up with this hardcore song on me i am not writing anything you know that should be on the next dual leaper album it's just like you write what you you are musically and how you were you know brought into music and i feel lucky that i happen to be we all happen to be inspired by a lot of different sides of the punk rock and rock world, you know? Well, I guess next something really interesting happens with the Dropkick Murphys where you've got all this momentum around the band and it just feels like the sky's the limit. And then Mike leaves the band and obviously you're writing the songs, but the lead singer is such an identifying part of every band where they're, questions about going on in your mind at that point or were there like other people you thought or was Al the immediate choice that was going to be the person to carry this forward no we we knew I think if it was two or three more albums in with Mike we would have probably felt like Al we can't go on but we had established such momentum and we had worked so hard and Mike had been expressing dissatisfaction with you know the life of spent a lot of time away from home. Mike had a lot of good political connections in terms of like, you know, getting onto the fire department or he's working for the you know, sheriff's department at one point. He had a good job at the globe. We were all kind of like, we're grinding it out. And I don't know. We don't currently got anything much better to do. Right. And, um, you know, so not that Mike didn't enjoy being in the band, but you know, as it started to really ratchet up and it was kind of staying on people's couches and stuff, you know, I don't think it was like what he envisioned his life was going to be. So we weren't taken as surprised by it as the fans would be. And we just felt like, man, we've done so much work. It's it's too much, too quick to like call it a day. Um, so like I said, if Mike had waited another, even another album, I think. Um, so we didn't have a plan. We didn't know it was going to be out right away. We tried out a few other people that we loved their voices. And um, I'm not going to say who they were because sounds like a diss you know that we didn't go that way but um some people who i was shocked that i thought would have been perfect and didn't work out like vocally wise and um yeah and then just one day in passing with al you know at that point the bruises he you know had been on god knows how many lineup changes and it was really just al trying to keep it going when it suited him to want to do something you know what i mean because he would have to do a lot of heavy lifting to put a lineup together and um so it just timing's everything, I guess, you know, and it just worked out, you know. Did you know him from doing shows like do bruiser shows or five balls of power shows or anything? I never did a show of five balls of power, but the drop kicks and bruises that play together, we even did a split single together. Oh yeah, absolutely. Later on, but I mean yeah. before that earlier. No, I mean I used to go see the bruises before I knew Al, just as you know, just as a fan of the band. So um you know, because, you know, Al's, even Al's a couple of years older than me, so I was kind of like, this band's cool, you know? And, um, 
you know, then obviously met him when I started to uh, book shows at the Rat and stuff. I met him before Dropkicks, yeah. It's fascinating what happens because, like, it, you know, the the trajectory of the band just goes up and up from there. But it's it's a crossroads to find yourselves in, especially as, like, a young band. Like, do you get a new name? Or, like you said, do you keep going the, with this momentum and hope that the fans stick with you in spite of the fact that you've got such a change it was also momentum but it was also like what we were trying to do was so unique you know what i mean if it was just like some straight up band it would have probably been like let's just change the name but like the name seemed to go so hand in hand of like the identity of what we were and what we were trying to create you know what was that first tour with the business like right because that's your first national tour i think yeah that was that was fun as fuck because we got we got along great. We were hazing the shit out of each other. We were pranks galore, fucking with them. It was great, but it was also a fucking rough tour. A couple of people were killed at shows on that tour, and um, you know, um, wait, wait while you're playing, remember, people are getting murdered. Yeah, like the, there was a murder at the show, and um, a Nazi got killed. Uh, at the show in uh, Corona, California. And then um, later on on the tour, we, um, Mike had quit during that tour and we pulled off and, um, and there was a show in Tampa and the guy, which is, you know, back then you didn't have websites or social media. So I'm talking to the guy in the phone and he's saying, yeah, we got, venue and it's gonna be great and we got go-karts we're gonna have a barbecue and i'm like this sounds like the best show of the tour apparently it was a white power clubhouse and none of us knew and and then the business found out right before but they kept the uh show advertised dropped the business dropkick murphy's and they had all white power bands opening and the kids went into the show i'm sure local skinhead kids knew not to go to this show but for like more of the just like fringe people whatever who were just maybe coming to see us and they went to the show and paid their money and were like uh oh where's the business where's dropkicks and what the fuck are these bands singing about and one of the kids that went to that show was killed uh, oh, stabbed to death holy shit by, by the nazis so um yeah so um you know but it was wild because it was cool. It was cool in the sense that there was, um, fuck, you know, you don't want anything like that to happen. But at the same time, there was, it was like this dangerous excitement to every show. We had a couple other shows that were had some sketchy incidents. So it, it went from like laughter and the best time ever and wholesome and we're fucking with each other and great friends. And it's always nice when you know, your musical influences turn out to be good shits as opposed to dickheads. So we were super happy about that. But then, you know, then some nights turned on a dime, depending on what might have gone down at the show, you know. Um, but it was uh, it was a great tour. Great, great, great memories. And um, we'll always we'll always uh, have fond memories of all those guys. And, and we always think of Mickey. And, uh, he's no longer with us. Yeah. Rest in peace. Uh, you bring up a good point, though. They're they're really is kind of a danger to things because there isn't a sense of unknown like you're there's no social media back then so there's no real way to check in on people or even check in on scenes yeah. and so you're kind of at the mercy of the fates and in the same way there's already been bands that have kind of like 
done this, every generation is beating down that trail more and more and passing that knowledge on to the next generation. And, you know, but you're, you, you kind of have to figure it out for yourself. Yeah. Well, there was probably some trail that was already beat down, but for us getting out there in the early days, we, it all happened so quick and so new that we were just, we were just rolling with it. You know what I mean? We were just rolling. And even though one some of the shows we were doing on our own on the weekend, you'd show up and he didn't know if you were coming into it. And you roll up to a bunch of kids looking at you and say, is this a fucking ambush or is this a party? I don't know. You know? Uh, but yeah, we've had many more good experiences than bad. And, um, and I've always just had that motto of you just you just show up because you know you don't pay attention to the rumor mill and you show up and ninety nine percent of the time it goes great you know. It's been interesting the last few years though watching as like sort of these uh, social dynamics of a punk scene have been kind of transposed more and more onto the quote unquote real world. Like you know, it, you used to go to a show and you'd wonder which side of the fence someone was on sometimes and didn't seem like that was as much a concern in certainly the mainstream. And now you, you gotta, you gotta think, you know, going to, going to a grocery store is like going to a hardcore show. You don't know what side someone's going to be on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We go to the barber shop and you're wondering if the guy beside you is a Trumper that wants to stab me. Uh, no, I, who would have thought, you know, you it used to be just the 20 confused kids in each city, you know what I mean? And now it's in 50% of this country anyway. I don't know about yours, but it's what oh it's happening here yeah. yeah it's it's frightening to see it kind of spread because you know america kind of sets the pace a lot of ways politically i find with canada we kind of tend to follow some of the trends because of the media and stuff and there's people up here playing that same sort of con game right now trying to use people's fears again. Yeah. well it's it's really been a big change in dropkick murphy's crowd because you know you know uh you know our audience is predominantly white working class and what demographic is did the most about face politically is the white working class courtesy of somehow believing that a billionaire was going <laughs> to a billionaire who never paid his, his anybody who did any work for him uh, was somehow a good fortune. I, I don't know, but um, you know, so, so that's, that's put me um, at odds with a lot of our fan base and a lot of my friends <laughs> and um it's a, if you told me years ago that this is where it'd be in 2023, I would have said, you're fucking crazy. No way. Yeah. You know, but. Yeah. Cause it felt like it was going the other way. And I guess that speaks to how manufactured this whole division is and what the purposes of manufacturing this kind of division in people are. And you're right. It's it's happening in Canada. It's happening all over the world right now. It's certainly happening in Europe right in front of us. And, you know, it just will spread. Well, all over Europe. It's, you know, it's been a very, uh, the playbook has been borrowed worldwide. And, um, you know, all I can say is that uh, I, I think the only way out of it at this point is, um, you know, another another big loss at the ballot box and someone maybe goes, um, you know, maybe this very radical position is not working for us. You know, not not that they'll change for the sake of changing, but but maybe put forth a candidate that's not so radical, you know, and then and then we'll get back to the good old days where, um, 
people just did all the fucking bad shit when no one was looking or whatever, you know? Yeah. Uh, but which is not good either, but I'm saying, you know, not, not really trying to turn out the masses and, and turn them on each other. It's anyway. Yeah. It was a, qu- a quaint, polite terribleness back then. Yeah. And now it's much more overt. Exactly. Going back to something much more pleasant. What's the deal with that been in the band grenades on the, end? I got my friends comp. <laughs> I, I love that song. I sing it with my kids all the time. Mummy Factory. Uh, I love the Grenades. Um, they were they were a band that was never, you know, you know, some bands uh, they're not trying to go anywhere, and you know they're not going to go anywhere because they couldn't be uh, on more separate pages about what they wanted to be as a band, what they were doing as people, schedules with their some serious characters and. Uh, you know, they, they actually played, they actually, we had them play. They played right, shit, I don't know if they played before or after us. No, they must have played after us. I I put them on the show with us when we opened for the freeze. So the very first Dropkick, public Dropkick show was Dropkicks, the Grenades, and the Freeze. And um, they were another band that mixed all the styles that, that uh, you know, that I liked anything from hardcore to a fucking Ruts influence. You know what I mean? It was like just... They, they weren't afraid to kind of change up with what few small repertoire of music they had. They were, they were fun and all over the map and musically. And uh, I don't even know how many shows they played. I, I, I never saw them play more than four shows. They might've played six or seven or eight. I'm not sure, but they were, uh, they were short lived legends. <laughs> well, talk about another group of legends that are, somehow criminally overlooked weirdly the freeze because like from that early I tourist single to the later stuff, that band was always good and just kind of gets overlooked. Yeah. Especially when a lot of the bands that I, uh, that I love changed the sound in a way I couldn't handle, you know, from that era. Um, so yeah. And, you know, obviously an unending, debt of gratitude to uh to bill close from the freeze for putting an instrument in my hand and uh and i said yeah but i'm a lefty and i got a righty bass and he said well just tune it upside we'll just turn the strings around so i mean you know at its very core it, w- it wouldn't happen without him so thank you bill if you're watching you, you bring up that stylistic change what was it like as a fan when all these bands did this sort of shift in their sound like you know, not judging them because they did it for their own reasons, but as someone that liked the hardcore stuff, like what did it feel like when all of a sudden you look around and there's not much left? Like were the other bands holding the torch for you? I mean, whether it was, you know, hardcore bands going metal or oi bands going synth pop fucking, um, you know, you definitely felt like what just happened, what just happened here. Wait, wait, Um, wait. You don't like you don't like the uh, later Blitz stuff. Yeah, no. What? I uh, love that stuff. Come on. <laughs> oh, you're a brave man. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think that um, I actually kind of swore off even really kind of going to. I mean, obviously, you know, bands like Slapshot and everything kind of kept the kept that you know bridge that gap but for a lot of for a long time i just kind of listened to the records i loved and was always afraid to like listen to uh you know newer music and then even coming into like you know then i hit my i hit 
the late 80s and I was just kind of fucked up, no pun intended, uh, to point where music was not even a priority to me. And then, you know, got sober in the in 91 and kind of rediscovered my love of music a little bit. And then I always say it was um, the Swingin' Utters were the band that made me go, oh, fuck, a new band could play music that I that I like. I was, um, it was their uh, Scared EP. And I was just like, oh, shit, this is the music that made my hair on the back of my neck stand up as a kid, you know? And um, and that just kind of gave me, a, I always give credit to them too, but just making me believe that new bands could make music that inspired me again, you know? That's fucking awesome because they're 100% the band that got me into this stuff. Yeah. They're, uh, they're unbelievable. And I, I always associate your two bands together because, I guess, the comp, but also because you know, it's two bands that were just focused on writing songs that weren't necessarily writing to genre so much as it was about writing just great songs that happened to be in the genre. I think that Streets of San Francisco album, I'm surprised it hasn't gone platinum yet because we'd be out on tour and just fucking buy, like someone would lose it or it would get scratched up and we'd just go into a record store and buy it again just to listen to it and <laughs> drive it in the van for hours and hours, you know, it just... Does anybody get that record on them? No, fuck. What's where's the nearest record? So let's buy it again, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, Dirty Sea still brings me to tears. Yeah, I love that song so much. Yeah, and it's funny because you know that when that EP came out, it, you know, it's such a strong EP, and then they get signed to Fat, and you guys released that unbelievable EP just before you get signed to Hellcat Epitaph, and it, it feels like you know, obviously, it goes in a different direction for swinging utters from there, but there's a lot of similarities between these bands, especially both of you putting out such classic EPs before the next stages of your careers. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely went, um, you know, we were going the same way on different routes in a way, you know, um, they, I never was, you know, I love that band. So I, and I hate when people are like, ah, the first records were better, blah, blah, because I've heard that a billion times. But there was definitely a signature change in the production sound when they went to the Fat Record studio with that Ryan Green guy. And I just missed, like, the rawness, you know what I mean? Yeah. And sometimes, like, Johnny and Darius's voices got to the point where because of like reverbed out or whatever was on him, like you almost couldn't tell who it was singing and they had mm -hmm. simple voices, but I could tell on those other records and you could, t you know, and you like in it. In a, and I just kind of felt like the whole thing just got compressed into something, you know, um, but the, the songs are still great and everything. Um, but, you know, that band was instrumental to um, helping us get out and play our first shows on the West coast. And you know, I would always book their Boston shows and, yeah, we had some we had a lot of fun times playing fucking squat in Rhode Island together that I put on, you know, just the lights were the lights went out in the middle of uh swinging out his set. I don't know how the lights went out, but the power didn't because they kept playing, but it was like, you know, twenty kids in the basement watching swinging out his play in the dock. It was pretty awesome. So is that the reason you went with Lars for the first record because of Streets of San Francisco? Uh, well, we love that record. We love the laws that done that, but Tim actually made the suggestion, you know, yeah, Tim, you know, with a funny story, um, Tim had, um, so I was booking shows at the rat and I get a call on like the landline at, at my house. It says, um, um, and it's, it's, uh, Ian McKay. And he says, uh, no, it wasn't Tim that called first. 
No, Tim called first. And Tim said, hey, man, man I fucking want to sign you guys. I got, I got the, the split. Someone gave him the Ducky Boy split. I'm going to do it. Sign this label called Hellcat. I'm going to do this comp. And I'm like, this isn't Tim Armstrong. Fuck no. And I was like, oh, man, man, he's got a pretty unique voice. I think it is Tim Armstrong. So I hang up. And right after that, fucking uh, Ian McKay calls and says, hey, Stormy Shepard gave me a number. I heard you book shows in Boston. Yeah, we want to do a you know, show. And I'm like, Fucking, I'm getting pranked, you know, and I go, oh, is it really? And I hung up the phone and then I called, you know, 411 and said, can you tell me where whatever the area code was, you know, and uh, where is this area code? And she said, Washington, D.C. And I said, oh, fuck. I called back. I called back and tried to explain the story that Tim Armstrong had just called and he was just... He did not have a great sense of humor about it. He, I don't think he even understood what he was trying to explain, but uh, it was in fact him, and he didn't end up using me to book the show uh, based on if he wanted me to book a Fugazi show. Um, and But, yeah, so Tim suggested laws, and, and, you know, Ransom was at the fucking height of their success, and I was living at my father-in-law. I just got married. I was living at my fa- with my father-in-law, and... Um, Laws came and produced the record and slept on the couch at my father-in-law's house, you know, which which we thought was super, you know, down to earth and really cool. And, you know, just started a lifelong friendship with, with him. And uh, obviously, massive thanks to, to Rancid for, you know, being one of the first bands he signed to Hellcat. I think Lars is kind of a super underrated producer. Like, he did your record... He did uh, the the business record. He did Streets of San Francisco. He did that Union Thirteen record. Like he didn't do a lot of records, but all of them really capture who the bands were and their spirit and vibe. Well, he's big on big on the vibe and the energy and getting the spirit, and that's what I I think that's the first thing a lot of bands lose is that spirit. You know what I mean? And um, you know if you if you're not excited to go in and make a record and make it like fucking borderline i don't know i I don't know how recording a record is dangerous but it always felt like that (laughs) was you know maybe it was just some disorganization maybe i'm confusing disorganization with danger i don't know (laughs) but there was just something frantic about it you know what i mean and uh yeah but in a great way you know what i mean yeah well in a not so great way about things getting dangerous uh, i've heard from a lot of people from boston that have been on the show elder james talked about it al talked about it. a lot of people have talked about it that towards the late 80s into the early 90s, things got a lot hairier and a lot crazier and a lot more violent at shows in Boston. Was that something that you picked up on coming back to shows, having taken that period off from going to them for a while? Yeah, they were pretty crazy and violent. I mean, I don't know. I was hanging around with a lot of fairly crazy, violent people outside the scene too. So I was like, (laughs) none of it phased me, to be honest with you. I I wasn't into it. I was like going to music was my escape from the real world that I was living in. So I didn't really like, why are we fucking fighting at a hardcore show? You know what I mean? Aren't we all friends there? Um, but uh, that was just not my place where I engaged in any of that. Um, but from my perspective, yes, there was always something going on and definitely some fucking nutbags in, in the scene. You know what I mean? And um uh, one of them whom you just named and once again never had never never was inserted in the middle of any of that and that was you know but but also never had problems with any of those guys and they were always kind of 
which kind of like drop kicks just kind of had this path pass to like meander through all those worlds and you know i i wasn't super tight with any of the fsu guys but all like we got along what's up how you doing Mm -hmm. (laughs) good you know what i mean Mm -hmm. i wasn't it was the role with them they weren't rolling with me but they they were always good to me you know and same with all everybody it was just i tell you what if you were a band trying to come out of boston and you weren't didn't have that kind of hall pass you'd have been fucked because you'll you literally wouldn't have been able to play you know and you and it wouldn't have taken much to run a foul you know well speaking of foul did you ever do any shows for Gigi Allen because he played the rat, right? <laughs> Gigi Allen, no, no, uh, no, no, that he would have been in, he would have been an upstairs 18 plus, and he <laughs> could have been someone else's problem there. Um, <laughs> no, I never had the pre- pleasure of uh meeting the man. Al has some GG stories though, oh, yeah, because New Hampshire, yeah, exactly. Oh, that's wild, yeah. Um, I actually saw a flyer the other day for a show in New Hampshire where the, the Bad Brains were playing with Out Cold and the Bruisers opening. It must have been like 94. That must have been a wild show. Mm. It must have been, oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, at, you know, it's been a few years now, and going through what's happened in America, and now you're going back on the road, are you finding people at all coming back that maybe had – left your shows or not come to see you for a number of years because of the political divide or like, I mean, like are people leaving this political sort of psychosis they've been in, like waking up and realizing, Holy shit. I followed like a false pariah and it's, it's led me to this weird ass point. Like, are you seeing a return? No, (laughs) I haven't seen that. Um, I think maybe people are choosing to, I don't think that anyone's willing to. I haven't met anyone yet that was willing, that's been willing to admit that they were flat out wrong, or maybe. But I've had some people say. I recently had a good friend where we kind of just said, "Hey, you know what? Let's not let people we don't know influence us to not be friends." And I guess at this point, that's the best you can do. Is like we're gonna not let's let's not talk about like if if you know. If you have a set of beliefs that you know I don't agree with and I have a set of beliefs that you don't agree with, the only hope of us being in the same room without driving each other crazy is to just not fight about it, not not bring it to each other. And, and that's the best, that's a, sadly the best you could do in some instances. But I kind of feel like some of those people starting with that is their way of saying like that's that's as close as you're going to get to them say that they were wrong you know what i mean um because yeah. like when it's like, well, yeah what about your side of it it's like i don't know try to take care of your neighbor fucking be nice to people like what's my side what am i apologizing for again <laughs> yeah. you know like yeah. um, where did i go wrong i don't want the fucking hunter's fucking laptop i don't know how to buy it and <laughs> i never been on a laptop so what the fuck are you talking about um you know, the, the bottom line is like, hey, listen, you know, I don't fucking, I don't have a fucking Joe Biden flag on my car. You know what I mean? He's a, he's a politician. I Do I think he's done a good job? Yes. But am I part of a cult following him? No. And, you know, I know that when I get on the highway at my house every Saturday morning, there's fucking 100 people with Trump flags 
you know, over the highway, you know, and there's the, therein lies the difference, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, it's, you know, and it's not idealized, as you said, and on the other side, but, you know, there's one politic that's clearly about hate and division. Right. And that's, you know, and you go back to what you said about, is it up here in Canada? A lot of it came from Canada, like Gavin McGinnis, the, the Proud Boys, like Jordan Peterson, like, you know, we really, we exported it to America and now it's oh, your thanks problem. Thanks for that. <laughs> well, you're welcome. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I guess I, 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 I'm not naive enough to think that the problem doesn't exist there. I guess, I guess I was thinking more about just that, you know, 50-50 division of like, holy shit. You know, this is, I live in fucking Massachusetts. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, granted, don't get me wrong, you know, Boston has not, not always had a great reputation when it comes to race relations, but I always used to, I would always put that more onto the segregation and division of the way the city was carved up and divided up. And this is, you know, your enclave, this is yours, this is yours, and we're all going to fight for our piece of the pie and fuck, don't come near mine, you know. Um, but I really don't feel like, even, even at the worst of, of 1980s Boston territorial racism, if white power people came through, we all would have been like, well, fuck you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, everyone hates know, Nazis. And, yeah. And I feel like to see that, that call it what it is, Nazism, at least, you know, Nazi sympathies is, is, is mainstream now. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, that's, that's, you know, it used to be, you know, even casually racist people hate Nazis. You know, like the, the, yeah. everyone hates Nazis. That's the basic starting point. And we can just hopefully all move on from there. The Greatest Generation fought a war about <laughs> so this. So I, not to laugh at it, but it's sadly true. And then somehow, I guess, you know, Donald Trump gave them the ability to fucking peek their head back out from under the rock. And, um, but like I said, to get back to the original point of like, if someone who has gone from, um, you know, a lifelong Democrat, working class, which which out of families that we, you would have called, you know, Kennedy-esque Democrats, which, you know, have now openly waved the banner of something completely opposite. Um, to get them to, to come back around to the fold is not going to happen overnight, you know? Yeah. Um, well, it's unfortunately, this weirdly has punk ties right like not to dwell on gavin mcginnis but he was going to punk shows in the basement he was seeing these bands hearing the same lyrics and it's like what did you hear because yeah. well it's not what i heard and it's not what i don't many of these artists most of these artists never intended for people to hear that from these songs so well i also think that you know there's uh you know the new culture of also like the boomer punks you know what i mean that they believed the same lyrics that we were and then then all of a sudden they, they didn't want to pay as many taxes and they didn't like their new neighbor. And all of a sudden by convenience, they, they changed their tune. You know what I mean? And um, it's like, so your, your core beliefs were shifted by how maybe, you know, sharing this tiny bit of your income with the less, less fortunate, you know what I mean? Uh, it, it, you know, or, or someone who doesn't look like you moved into your neighborhood and that is totally going to put everything that you stood for, for your whole life in the music you listen to out the window. I, uh, you know, that, 
that's what I see in a lot. And I'm 54, you know, and I see that's what we we've 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 uh, dubbed it boomer punk. Yeah, you know, a lot of guys we know, a lot of guys we know that in bands and work work for bands, and you'll backstage be talking. You know, a catering and fucking bitching about the wall and your fucking head snaps <laughs> or what? Get the fuck, what? You know. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Well, it's 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 mind boggling. Like the people that do it because they're rich and and they're greedy. That's one thing. It's the people that don't have anything that support this dude. And it's like, do you right. like? Do you honestly think you're going to be better off under this billionaire? They couldn't even stand to be in the same room as you. Like just cross the street to get away from you. Wouldn't piss on you if you were on fire. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't even yeah. piss on you. Well, Ken, this has been awesome. And I don't want to keep you all day, but thanks for doing this. It's been a big thrill because as I said, you know, Dropkick Murphys are kind of a nexus point for Boston punk. And if the Dropkick Murphys are the nexus point of of Boston punk that makes you kind of like this being your only band, the ringmaster of the circus that is uh Boston <laughs> punk and hardcore. <laughs> That's a great analogy because it is a fucking circus. I'll tell you that. Um, yeah, man, hopefully, hopefully we'll get to come back to, to, to Toronto again. We're actually coming back to Canada for the first time since the pandemic, uh, this coming weekend up to Newfoundland and, uh, Quebec, somewhere in Quebec. So uh, have you ever been to we'll be Newfoundland? We have, yeah. Oh, wow. I fucking love it. Oh my yeah. god, it's like going back in time. You know, people yeah. we got off the plane and like little old ladies were like, Are you the band? You want to come over for lunch? You know what I mean? I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, like it's just awesome. And uh uh so yeah, maybe next time we get together we can sit down in person. Thank you, Ken, for coming on the show. And you're right there. Ken will be back for part two at some point in the future. Or more more than likely a splits with Jonah from Fucked Up, who used to have a full Dropkick Murphys kit that he'd wear when he first got into punk. But that'll come up in the part two. Uh, I love you, Jonah. Because he's definitely going to be listening to this one. I know that for sure. And once again, thank you, Ken, for coming on the show. All right, coming up on the next episode, let's keep it going with another legend. This time, a legend. Well, I thought we were going to be talking mainly about Berkeley with this guest, but we talk about a lot of different stuff. Oh, my gosh, this goes different places next week. From the band Blatz, from the band The Criminals, from Grups, from Scene Killers, A.K.A. Jesse Blatz, A.K.A. Jesse Dangerous, A.K.A. Jesse Luscious will be on the show. And oh my gosh, I'm excited for you to hear this one. A legend, someone that I used to punish, punish mercilessly at the Lookout Record Store. And here we are punishing him again on Turned Out a Punk. Full circle shit, everyone. Full circle shit. There's there's a lot of surprises next week on that episode, too. Oh, I'm excited for, to talk about it with myself because no one in my family wants to hear me talk about these episodes. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. That's it for the show. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives and issues of indigenous peoples all over the world matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths, sexualities, races, genders, because 
We're not talking about politics here. We're talking about just basic human rights shit. People deserve to be able to live free knowing that they're not going to be persecuted for being who they are or, 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 or what they choose to do with their lives. There's just no place for this kind of hatred and violence. So if there's organization, and I would also add to this, we also need to make sure that people keep their hands out of other people's reproductive systems because that's also a human right. Uh, so get involved. There's people doing positive work in the world around you. They could probably benefit from your time or your money or, or something. Um, I know it's overwhelming. So just pick one thing. Uh, there's also speaking of picking one thing, pick one thing you want to do in punk. Anyone can do this shit. Start a band, start a fanzine, start making posters, silk screening, like anyone can do this stuff. And when you help build it, it makes it better. Speaking about making things better, try meditating. It works for me. Maybe it'll work for you. Who knows? It could be, you know, better than just being bummed. Uh, and uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. All right. Well, that's it for me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. See you on the next episode. Bye.